Welcome, explorers, to Part 5 with Captain Randy Kramer of the U.S. Marine Corps Special Sections, who is going today to give us a rare treat. I am glad all of you showed up for the Cosmic Family Discount Tour, where you will be stepping into the life of three extraterrestrial cultures that Randy has met and visited with. These ET cultures are not just the ones on Mars and the Moon. They are from other planets way out in our galaxy. We are introducing you first to some humanoid species, which are those that look mostly like us, two arms, two legs, and one head, so to speak. So welcome back, Randy, for part five. I always have so much profound fun with you. I'm like a kid in a candy shop. (laughs) Are you there? Sweet. I'm here. Thanks for having (laughs) me. very funny. Good fun. <laughs> okay, so Randy, you may actually be the first person that most of our listeners get to listen to that has actually visited in person at least two extraterrestrial civilizations beyond our solar system. Uh, that is correct. Okay, so on one planet in particular, you had an accident, unfortunately, and so had to stay there a while to recoup. So. I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners uh, what, well, you know, things like what that planet is called, what system it is located in, and maybe why you were sent there in the first place. So I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This this was someplace that I had been injured and had to stay behind. I don't recall a place yeah. that I was injured and had to stay behind. Oh, I thought- I'm, I'm not recalling. That version okay, of I the thought, story. I so. thought you had your ankle ankle injured. No, I, I, that's not me. You're thinking of somebody else. Mm-mm. Really? Yeah, oh no. I, they would if I if I I'd hurt it, myself, okay. they would have prepared it up in a matter of you know an hour or something. Okay, because I'm thinking of um, where was it in Cassiopeia? I'm thinking of Cassiopeia and Alpha Centauri. <sighs> So, okay, well, I've been to the Alpha Centauri for a short visit. Uh, I spent two years on Sonara um, because I was stationed there. I wasn't injured. I was stationed there for two years. They were having a war with a neighbor, and we showed up to help out, and I got stationed there for pretty much from the beginning to the end of the war, which is about two years. Hmm. And who was the war with? Are you able to say? Uh, Just some neighbors. I mean, some neighbors who really are of no consequence at the moment, that's for sure. But just a a neighbor that had, uh, to be honest, not a very advanced neighbor at all, fairly primitive neighbor that someone came along and sold a bunch of military hardware to. And so they got kind of a little overly ambitious and bigger than their britches. Oh, okay. And so do do they actually have a military base? The planet's called Sonora? Is that the name Sonora, of the planet? Well, that's not how they pronounce it, obviously, but that's how we pronounce what we say. Wouldn't be the first time that a bunch of Anglos made names so that we could pronounce them. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay, so so you were there for, you said two years? Did I hear two that Two years, right? about two years. Yeah, about two years. Wow. Okay. And helping protect the people, more or less? In the land there? No, I mean, no, I was stationed at a military base there. Um, our goal as a military operation there was to basically fight this war for them. They were not militarily capable, and so we came along to essentially do it for them. 
the assessment was that it wouldn't be that big of a deal, wouldn't take that much time, uh, two years, fairly short time for a war with an entire planet. Um, so okay. it was and really what, something that we, we, we showed up to do it because they couldn't really do it. And so we weren't really protecting the people of Sonara because they weren't being directly threatened by, you know, the sort of battlefront at that point. So just being stationed uh, there is like, you know, the equivalent of, <clears throat> you know, kind of like the, yeah, the equivalent of sort of being stationed, you know, in Tokyo during the Korean War or something. I mean, you're, you're, you're not that far away, but you're also nowhere near where the, the action of the battles are happening. So at no point were we really trying to protect the Japanese people during the Korean War because they weren't at risk. So in this sense, there were colonies and science stations that were Sonoran territory that were, you know, sort of at threat. But that wasn't really my job either. My job wasn't necessarily protecting people. My job was uh, high-value target um, retrieval or assassination. So essentially we get high value targets, thing, people that are important. We either go in and rescue them or go in and kill them, depending on whether they were someone we wanted to keep or someone we wanted to kill. So my job was a little more specialized in that sense. Okay. And the, and the people on there were humanoid, correct? I mean, they were, they were more yeah, like I, humanoid? I would, I would say that physiologically you wouldn't be able to tell the difference uh, between a Sonaran and a Terran, with the exception of the iris of the eyeball, that's what's different. They right. have kind of a swir- We have a we have concentric circle iris. They have a swirly uh-huh. iris. It's kind of a odd S shape. Okay, yeah, that sounds beautiful. It's really actually. distinct. It's actually kind of it is actually kind of pretty. Um, it's very it's very distinct. But other than that, physiologically, they're almost uh, you know, the same. And so we're, we're definitely an, an interesting, uh, close relative. That's for sure. Of some kind. Okay. So you, did you get to know, um, are they called the Sonorans? Is that what they're called? That's uh, what we call them. Sure. The Sonorans. Okay. So did you get to know any families and people while you were there? Oh yeah. Um, yeah, there was a gentleman who I actually, uh, one of the first people I rescued as a high-value target who was a Sonoran scientist. Um, and I got to meet his family and became very well acquainted with them, actually. Yeah, I got invited to dinner a lot at his place. Okay, so that's that's actually what the what I was thinking about, believe it or not, but I must have had the um, injury. Yeah, no, you got the ankle thing. Uh, I don't know you got the ankle thing, but that's okay. I thought it was on Gaia, but anyway, no big deal. Mm-mm. I apologize. Okay, no. So what, 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 what let me put it this lost. way. Any, what, at what point in my career would an injury not have been able to be healed up within a matter of hours based on the technology that we're using? Now, I'm not trying to pick on you for that. I'm just saying, yeah, there's, no, there's, I, I, I can't imagine that I ever would have said that anywhere at any time. Okay, so what I, it's all good. It's all good. Um, I, in, my, in my reality... I, I never said you were injured for a long time. I just said, um, I thought you had hurt your ankle going down steps and that it was taken Mm-mm. care of very quickly. Gosh, Mm-mm. that is so no, weird. Can't, no, can't okay. think of a story that I would relate, that would have related to that where I hurt okay. myself going down Woo. steps. In fact, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of at a loss okay. to trying to think of an ankle injury like that, you know. Okay. 
Well, I'm confusing it with something else. But in what I really want right. the people to know is not so much about the injury, but more about what you can share since you were kind of brought into the family there, what mm-hmm. you can share about, you know, the things that often we're interested in, like personalities. You know, let's start with, like, personalities. I'll, I'll list off a bunch of stuff and you can describe, like, so kind of their general personalities, their sense of humor, how similar is that to ours or not? Yeah, very, very, very similar, actually. Um, it, it, it wouldn't be that different than visiting with Europeans, you know. They're really similar, but you'd also be, you know, some sociological language, you know, kind of uh, differences, but, you know, they would be really, 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 really similar. So, I, I, and I, I would say so, socially, they're quite a bit more functional than we are as a society. So imagine people who are very much like us, but probably more like Europeans who are way more socially functional and, um, you know, not very um, anger prone. So mm-hmm. they're they're pretty pretty calm, you know, pretty intellectual. They can be very very verbose, very wordy, depending on what they're talking about. Um, both very both with very. Their, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Both with their, so they have a language they use with their voice, and then also telepathy abilities or just language. Yeah, I would I would see, I would call them a psionically emergent species, which we are also a psionically emergent species. I would say as a psionically emergent species, they're probably, oh, anywhere from 150 to 250 years ahead of us on on that sort of development scale that we could sort of be where they are psionically in another couple hundred years, which is Again, only sort of slightly more, you know, the average bar is only sort of slightly higher than our average bar. But, you know, significantly, but slightly really on the scale. Okay. So close enough to really be able to easily relate to everything else. Yeah. Like I said, very. Like, Like you run into certain things about food and certain things about certain social patterns and certain behaviors. Again, in the same way that if we were traveling here on planet Earth and you'd meet other Karens, you'd find some differences in the way people talk and communicate and socially behave and so forth. But we're still pretty much, you know, the same more than we're different. So it's all sort of just a socio, again, social, sociological more than anything, you know, sort of behaviors and, you know, functionality versus this our sort of Karen dysfunctionality, which is our sort of neutral gear our main gear instead of the abnormal gear unfortunately okay so um well there's so many subheadings i want uh you to comment on like we're doing so i i know this sounds kind of scanic but what about facial no, hair Style, styles of oh hair yeah no yeah, yeah no totally yeah yeah they, they can grow facial hair i'd say that the mustache at the time that i was there um, Fashion-wise, mush- mustaches were, were fairly common for men. Um, yeah, and what, yeah. Uh, kind of you know big ones too, big bushy ones too. Um, not so much beards, not so much beards. Okay. Not that, that you wouldn't see someone with a beard, but not so much beards. Uh, clean shaven, also acceptable. 
but yeah, you know, probably big furry mustaches and some, you know, clean shaven faces and not a lot of beards is sort of their was their facial hair preferences when I was there. But like like I'm sure we do, it's the thing that would change, you know, with them over decades, you know, sort of fashion kind of stuff. So who knows what's the same now. And general height and um about the same you know i would say i would say most no i would no i would say most of them were really about where we are between sort of five and six feet tall hmm. okay yeah. yeah yeah so very very similar what about very um so they clothes, wore clothes styles, textures um okay. <laughs> the, the the fabrics i would say they had Mm, you know, a, a variety of fabrics that clothes could come in. Um, I would say the fashion design was not non-existent, but certainly not to the level of what human fashion design is. <clears throat> so their clothes were, were, I would say, simple and attractive enough. You know, they, they looked good enough on the people who wore them. Um but I, I wouldn't say that they had the same fit quality that a lot of our clothing does. Um, but they're, you know, the fabrics were certainly, you know, very finely manufactured, well manufactured fabric uh, fabrics and fibers. Um, but the design and was a little, little. I would just, I would just say a little less. I mean, maybe if you gave a, a design class to a high school, you know garment making <laughs> class you might it's kind of the kind of thing you might end up okay. with nothing that fancy or nothing that great but you know so the thing that was the thing that was interesting i'm sorry go ahead the picture i get is kind of practical and bulky or something or, or yeah to be honest that, that they were of? a little yeah they weren't exactly the kind of clothes that make your you know physical definitions look really amazing they're a little frumpy a little frumpy but kind okay. of for everybody so you know it's not like you know, are they all the same colors? Not all the same color. However, major cities have color themes that are associated with the city. And so oh. you will see, depending on the city you're in, uh, buildings that are different shades of that color across the entire landscape. You'll see lampposts that are that color. You'll see you know, benches that are that color. You'll see lines on the street that are that color. Uh, and you'll see a predominance of people wearing clothes that are that color. So, oh. yeah, they have a very interesting thing about their Fascinating. sort of... Fascinating. Yeah, they have this very interesting relationship between civic pride, the color associated with that civic pride, um, and then clothing that seems to sort of reflect, you know, that color or color scheme in some cases. So, I've uh, studied color and the power of that. Do did they share with you? Like, the, okay, so say the family that you said had invited you in the scientists. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What district were they in, and what was their colors? Uh, they were in a city that was predominantly emerald green. It was the, was the primary color of that city. It's not an. It's not again. The, Pronouncing their language is really difficult. 
um, to do it sound right. So I'm not even going to try to do it for people because I, I can hear myself and it sounds horrible when I do it. And so, okay. um, so I couldn't pronounce the name of the city for you. And I don't know that we had a different name, an Anglo name for it, but it was um, not, it was not the capital city. I did visit the capital city, but it was not the capital city. Um, but it was a, I don't know, it was a pretty big city, I think for, I don't know, I guess, for some of the size of the cities that they have, which were not that large. They had a pretty decent sized population, but their individual, they, let me put it this way. They had more cities on their planet that were smaller. Whereas we have, you know, kind of more city, you know, fewer cities that are bigger, if that sort of makes sense. There was mm-hmm. kind of more metropolitan centers that were smaller than sort of metropolitan centers we have. They would consider the metropolitan centers we have to be ridiculously overcrowded and overdensed and, you know, what, why in the world would you do that and put people that close and make it that difficult to pump water and electricity and waste water? And why would you do that? They would think that would be incredibly condensed and wasteful and um, packing people in like animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, are they big on nature? Is there, do they make a yeah, priority? Oh, yeah. I mean, they, less people, big... more nature? No, I wouldn't say that. I would say that they, they really they have a very completely green society. I mean, they don't pollute, they don't have fossil fuel burning. They don't, you know, river, you know, whether dumping toxins and waste into the rivers and the ocean and so forth, they have a completely clean industry um, so that they're not polluting their environment because they understand long-term, you know, well-being of a planetary environment requires that you, you know, treat it like the inside of your home. You don't go dumping, you know, shit and oil and toxic waste on the inside of your home because you have to live there. And if you treat your planet like the inside of your home, then you want to keep it clean. Planet's the same way. You keep it clean. You don't dump stuff all over the place. So they have a, they have a clean environment. Uh, they have some large natural areas for sure. I, I, I mean, it's the planet is not so densely populated by any means that there isn't vast swaths of natural land you know, all across the place. They certainly do. Um, I think their population was probably less than, you know, five and a half billion total for the entire planetary size, which was just slightly bigger than Earth. I think it's sort of the physical size. Their gravity is like 1.1 or something like that. So it's maybe, you know, less than 10% bigger, you know, volume-wise. Mm-hmm. And and water and all of that stuff? Oh, water's plentiful, definitely, you know, green-blue mm-hmm. vegetative planet. Oh, yeah. And, but, you know, with a variety of ecosystems in the sense that they had rainforests, they had deserts, they had, you know, mm-hmm. met, you know, grassy plains and so forth. They had a pretty interesting, what I would say, a normal range of ecosystems on a planet that would experience varying weather conditions like we do. What about animals? Do they have pets or animals outside? Yeah, or, they or do. Yeah, I mean, they, oh, they absolutely have wildlife. Um, as far as like house pet companions, they uh, family uh, that I stayed with sometimes, and they had a mar kind of a marmoset, a sort of a marmoset. Think of <laughs> about a marmoset, but like twice yeah. the size of a marmoset, but super domesticated. So like the most chilled oh. out, relaxed marmoset that you've ever like met in the world. And that was, you know, <laughs> their little pet Bobo. I called him Bobo. I, I couldn't, I didn't, I didn't like the name that they called him, so I just called him Bobo. <laughs> so kind he of a mix cute. between a, a ragdoll cat and a beaver or something. <laughs> 
pretty. Well, you got you got to so look cute. up you got to look up what a, you got to look up a picture of what a marmoset is, and then and then sort of extrapolate from that. Okay. The ears are the ears are okay. a little fluffier, but um, yeah, yeah. He was he didn't know what to think of me the first time he met me because he clearly smelled something that I smelled completely foreign and like anything he'd ever smelled, and he was not okay with that. So he kind of cleared clear me at first, but um, I started bringing. Um, they issue us these little protein bars, Three? these little vitamin <laughs> protein bars. Well, they're like these little vitamin protein bars that, you know, when you need, you know, quick food, carbos or whatever, and they're usually chocolate or vanilla flavored or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I would bring a few of those and, you know, pull them out of my pocket and bust off, you know, pieces, and he would sniff at it, and apparently he liked chocolate. So, you know, I started feeding him <laughs> those things, and then we became friends. Oh, so, how long? Yeah, then I, then, how, yeah, then I, then when I would come over, he would basically come up to me and crawl like up and down, you know, sniffing my pockets, looking for like, where's the treat? Come on, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so is that like the major animal, or you know, for pets, they Say obviously again? don't have the. Was that the major animal for a pet? I, I, I wouldn't say that I was variety. super familiar with like their range of domesticated pets. I mean, you know. It, Mm-hmm. It, interestingly enough, not completely unlike Karen's. Yeah, it's not uncommon for someone to have uh, a fish habitat or a bird habitat, you know, sort of in their home. I mean, there were some interesting mm-hmm. relationships that people had with sort of domesticated animals that that varied. I don't remember any dogs, but I do remember, uh, I don't want to say a, like a, our domesticated cat or a feline that you were, or whatever recognized, but something that seemed to be similar to some kind of felinus. Um, they were pretty good size, actually, though. They're pretty fat. But, mm. know, so something sort of like a cat, but not exactly. Like if you saw you'd be like, is that a cat? And it'd be sort of. But, mm. yeah. Okay. And were the animals telepathic there? No, not that I experienced. I mean, they were smart. You know, they had smart domesticated, mm-hmm. you know, animals, or at least the marmoset that I, you know, was around. He seemed pretty smart, but he's a primate, so, you know, smart. Uh, but, no, I, I don't think I – I personally can't say I experienced all the animal life on that planet, but I never experienced one that seemed to be like, hey, what's up? The telepathic over here. You know, <laughs> exactly. Okay, so what about food? Like, uh, did you have a meal with his family at all? Lots. Lots and lots and lots. Okay, um, so can you tell so us I would, what that I would was say, like, how they prepare it? Well, I would say that their food is, to be honest, not a lot different from ours. The main differences are way, 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 way less sugar in everything. Like way Oh, that makes sense. Because they'd be more healthy. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. But I think it's also like they never had a point in their history where someone was like, hey, let's mass produce this concentrated sugar and feed it to everybody. So I think mm-hmm. it just didn't happen for them historically where that occurred. And so they didn't have an entire population addicted to sugar like we do. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, they, they have. In fact, it was some of their food was I had to choke down a little bit because it was a little blue uh, in some cases. And I remember the first time I was trying to explain cake. Uh, to his wife <laughs> and so I was like all right I'll have the cook make me up a, a little cake and have the, the the cook at the base make me up a little cake and took it over to them and they couldn't Aww. hardly choke it down it was so sweet and so 
but she like she's oh. like okay let me let me let me take this and like see if I analyze it and see if I can't make something make some cake and I was like all right so she took what was left of the cake and um, made a cake a, a Sonarin cake which was to be honest sort of like um, <laughs> sawdust. No, 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 no. Kind of like chocolate sourdough bread, to be honest with you. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Kind of like chocolate, but yeah, and and not fluffy, not like a fluffy cake. I think mean, we, she and I had the conversation about like eggs and fluffiness, and she was like, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think she did better after that. Her subsequent cakes were fluffier anyway, but uh, not much oh. sweeter because they, they couldn't handle like a sweet cake. So they would basically... It was like a barely sweet, you know, chocolate sourdough bread. Yeah. It sounds like they're sure. lovely, and it sounds like they really took you in as kind of like a family member or something. Oh, yeah, you absolutely. Know? Yeah, absolutely. Are they that way with, uh, quote, off-worlders, you know, general or people? Um, or? No, no. I mean, they're not super isolationist when it comes to off-worlders, but, no, I mean, I saved as I as far as his family was concerned, I saved his life. And so they were incredibly grateful. And I, I think uh, went, I, th- I think they went a little above and beyond, and beyond to be courteous to me. Not, not that they, I mean, they're very hospitable. I think that just to invite an off-worlder into their home in the way that they did wouldn't necessarily have been the first thing that they'd done if it was just somebody they just happened to meet through work. They might, I'm, not saying they wouldn't show that. I'm not saying they wouldn't show that person hospitality, but not, you know, three times a week. Which is lovely yeah. if you're going to stay somewhere for two years. So by yeah, implication absolutely. of what you're, what you're saying, my guess is that this person you saved was the target. Your job yes, or something. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah his, the scientist. Yeah, the, the, the okay. father. Yeah, the scientist's father. And yeah. what, what was his specialty? Um kind of meteorologist, geologist, some kind of, you know, environmental, like, scientist or something, meaning he studied things mm-hmm. about the relationships between, you know, meteorology, geology. He was stationed at an, on another planet at the time that he was doing research on, and this was a, uh, a, it was a smaller planet that was a completely different gaseous, sort of makeup. So it wasn't an oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide anywhere. It was something completely different than that. And he tried to explain it to me a couple of times. And somehow the chemical relationship in the atmosphere and sort of geomagnetic activity had this weather relationship. And so he was studying this relationship between I think geomagnetic electric activity that was a light, essentially lightning that came from the ground out of geomagnetic activity, which is pretty weird. And then mm. this gaseous environment, again, that was not oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide, so somehow it was more conductive and that it created weather patterns. Anyway, something something like that. He tried to explain it to me, not my cup of tea, so I, you know, think something like that. But So he was there being stationed there, and the planet got invaded and so we you know they had a list of people to get out and he was on my list so i got him out way to go okay what about what about their lifespan um they're a little old they get a little older Uh, i'd say that they tend to 
so they they do have the ability to medically extend lifespan beyond their right. natural lifespan. But right now their natural lifespan is probably right around two or 250 years. Yeah. They seem pretty content sense. with yeah. that at the moment. They seem pretty content with that at the moment. So they don't do a lot of like, you know, having people live hundreds of years, even though they could, they kind of seem to be pretty content. Nah, I'm 235. I can go, you know, they, they, they tend to have a, that mm-hmm. is plenty. I, I can I can say I've had a complete mm-hmm. life after that many years and be perfectly happy to move on, start over, whatever you know they're doing. But yeah, about two between two and two hundred fifty years. Huh. Which of course brings up the whole concept of spirituality and religions and and uh, you know I would imagine they're more spiritual than religious in terms of their belief system of souls and. Who they are. Now, I, I would I would say the I would Whoa. say actually the very opposite of that. I would say that um, wow. there. So there were some what I would call religious relics of previous eras. So there there was an official sort of priesthood, and they had little temples and you know, but they're it was very small. The number of of, of devotees is very small. And people in the civilian population see it as literally nothing more than hanging on to a piece of history. Um, Mm -hmm. No one takes, no one, and I mean no one takes religion seriously. No one takes religious explanations for anything seriously. No one takes religious mythology seriously. No one takes religious explanations for anything as anything other than um, what tiny-minded, unscientific people do to explain things that they can't understand are scientific. They are a deeply academic, scientific, and mathematical people, and their approach to their psionic development is completely 100% scientific and has nothing to do with religion or spirituality. They would just, if you tried to use spirituality terms, they would say, no, 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 you're not talking about it right. It's physics. It's math. Well, you know what? So did you would feel quite um uh coherent with him because your psionic class that you teach is based all on physics, the higher physics, correct? Um yeah, that's because all of the really good psionic species that we've ever met have been very clear about that. That this is all science, math, physics, nothing else not anything else. It's math, science, and physics. If you think about it in a different way, you're going you're gonna to get lost. You're going to end up in a psionic dead end or worse yet, start a cult. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Fascinating. Uh, what about art, music, dancing? What are their favorite pastimes? Uh, you know, um, like no, oh, they're very artistic. They're very artistic. Um, they're also very musical. Hmm. Um, yeah, and, um, well, in, in, interestingly enough, and fortunately enough, I suppose for me, they, they use the same chromatic musical scale that we do, which is not normal. That's actually pretty unusual to have, um, the same chromatic musical scale. There, there are some species that use the same scale, but a lot who don't, a lot who use very different, um, pentonic scales, um, and sort of dodeca. I mean, there's there's some so many different mathematical variations of musical scales, and what an A is or would be in somebody's scale that can be so different can make music really foreign 
if it's played on a different scale and the notes are really different. They're not going to sound right to your ear at all, but our music wouldn't sound right to somebody else's ear. So interestingly enough, they used the same traumatic scale. So their music was actually enjoyable sometimes. Um, I'm not sure how I would describe, how I would describe is to say um, very fond of string instruments. I say that they're very fond of string instruments. You just yeah. read my mind. Um, I was going to ask yeah. if they had those. Not um, having had a close look at one or two, though, I would have to. I would have to say that maybe someone who makes violins or guitars could look at that and like tell you what's happening. I don't think I could tell you what was happening, other than to say there's some similar physics happening here, but also something happening in a way that I have no idea. How to explain what's different about this? So, um, mm-hmm. okay. For, for instance, and what about dancing? Um, for, instance, mo- they... for instance, most most of our musical instruments have like a single uh, bridge for strings. I would say that most of their in- instruments did not have a linear position for all the strings, and so you had strings that were on different bridges at different angles to the echo chamber body, which all created slightly different sounds. Hmm. Now, Think was of like of a their... guitar that was crossed with a bagpipe. Wow. Was any of that design carried over into the geometry of their buildings? Mm-hmm. Meaning like... Okay. No, I would not so, not in any sort of normal way. That no, their architecture was, was had a whole different kind of theme to it. It was gorgeous, um, but it definitely had its own theme. So, like what? They, what? Um, so they like some tall buildings, not like skyscrapers necessarily that we like to make, but they have they had some tall buildings that were you know, easily, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 stories. But instead of having a skyscraper or a building that has a square base or a rectangular base, the base would be round or oblong. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So so instead of flat surfaces, it would be curved surfaces. So very roundy, very roundy, you know, sort of architecture. To be honest, it's very kind of pretty on the eye when you're staring at a skyline that's all sort of curved, you know, tall buildings. Find that T- kind, of makes, kind of makes your too. eye go, ah, that's kind of nice. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you know, some people think the square buildings we have and stuff, the energy gets trapped in corners. And a Palladian person was talking about their buildings being more dome structure, kind of. Uh, sure. You know, because of a whole energetic to it. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. No, no, they had, they had a few. They had a few. Um, some of their civic buildings, you know, city halls, courthouses, and so forth, were like domed buildings, buildings with big domes. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of their, you know, other residential and business sort of buildings, again, with these sort of tall, roundy shapes. Okay, great. Um, just, I know people will be really interested in extraterrestrial relationships, partnering, and having children, i.e. sex. So if you sure. could briefly describe that, that would be awesome. 
Well, so, <laughs> so um, this very uh, wonderful scientist and his wife uh, lived with their son and their adult daughter and their pet Bobo. And um, his, his daughter took a bit of a liking to me. And um, there was an occasion where he took me aside and said, um, it's very clear that my daughter likes you very much. Um, I said, yes, that is very clear. And he was like, isn't she beautiful? It's like, well, yes, of course she is. Isn't she smart? Yes, of course she is. (laughs) Why do you keep rejecting her? And I was like, oh, well, because where I come from, you don't hit on a man's daughter that, you know, you know through work. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, you know, that's, that's how I was raised that you don't do that exactly. sort of thing and he said oh okay I understand that and he says well you're here and you live here and I want you to know that um, you know if you reject my daughter again she's going to be hurt and I'm going to be insulted and I was like oh, oh, oh okay really... all right okay all right <laughs> so well, I don't know. all right okay all right if, that's, if you're cool I'm cool um, you did your duty, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, so, all right. Um, so, yeah, I would say that, you know, we we had a relationship for the better part of that two-year period. Um, mm. And I mean, because because we're so very similar, um, I, I would say the sexual interaction is not very different. Mm-hmm. I would say that it's fairly similar uh, as far as like, you know, what's different about Sonaran sex and human sex, not much, except that um, Sonaran females make this cute little sound. It's a little trill sound that they make. <laughs> it's kind of, it's, it's, and it's kind of, and it's kind of cute and it's kind of an adorable and it's kind of hypnotic. And oh. um yeah, I've been I've been told by Sonaran men that, you know, you know, female trilling is really sexy and really hot and so um <laughs> I I don't know that I understand it the same way, but yeah, I was I it I was aroused when she did it, so it apparently is a cross species kind of wow. thing. It's like an aphrodisiac. So, it, so it, yeah, it kind of, yeah, it, there's something there. I'm not sure. I mean, obviously we have similar pheromones and similar hormones. I mean, again, we're super, super similar. So, so I guess I shouldn't expect mm-hmm. anything to be so super different, but there to be some sort of variation there. But yeah, that was, yeah, that was interesting for sure. Oh, for how, sure. Be- how, be- how beautiful. Um, so you're not going to do yeah. documentation for the audience of the trilling? Oh no, I can't. Again, no, 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 I can't. Because you're a male. I, 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 yeah, I'm a male. I couldn't do it right. I couldn't. I couldn't make the sound right. I'd have to teach some girl how to make a sonar and trill, and then like have you know her do it for you. And be happy um, ever after. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for yeah. sharing something so intimate. That is really lovely. Yeah. And what so, about and, partnering and, and couples? Yeah. I'm sorry, say again? What about partnering? Because I know that often in higher cultures, they, they're they not so uh, always uh, monogamous. You sure. Know, so, yeah. So, um, excuse me. 
so they marriage is a thing in their culture, but a little old fashioned. So um, it's it's not as common for mated pairs to be married, but being a mated pair is also a, a legal arrangement. So you know if you're a mated pair, there are sort of lawful you know rules about children and child raising and so forth that would come to play uh, that would be legally binding even though you're not married. Mar marriage is more this formalization. But anytime uh, two people decide that they're going to have a child together, then you're automatically a legally mated pair. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That, well, that so, makes yeah, sense. So, and, yeah. and we had we had one child while I was there. We had a son. And I got to see him you know, for maybe a month and a half before I had to go. Um, so at least I got to hold him, but hopefully I get to see him again. That would be really nice. Don't make me think about it too hard. Um, oh, but yeah. yeah. Anyway. Oh, I'm sorry. And they have the same gestation period pretty much and all that stuff. Um, it's actually about eight months. So it's actually uh -huh. a little shorter. It's not nine months. It's like about eight months. Oh, well, you'll get back there someday, right? Oh yeah, no, no. When the when the travel embargo goes down, you know. Oh yeah, I'll absolutely take a trip for sure. Oh, thank you so much for being vulnerable and sharing that because I know that's you know really private and close to your heart. I imagine. Now um, we have a lot of mental disease on this planet, and right. I imagine they have a way that they have learned to deal with that. Could you share that? Uh, I mean, yeah, or if they sure. even have mental disease, they may not. <laughs> not well, sure. I mean, it can happen, uh, but the way that they avoid it having a being a social problem is that most, um, you know, mental health, behavioral health conditions are treatable if you understand what's happening at the neurobiological, biochemical, you know. Um, glandular levels, and you can mess with that to make it, you know, things that aren't functioning quite function correctly. And if you intervene early, so um, the medical exams, the thorough state mandated medical exams, I want to point out, meaning that as a citizen, you would not have the freedom to not go to your state mandated health exam. You would have to show up to your state-mandated health exam, and if it is determined that you have certain conditions, you're going to be treated for them whether you want to or not because you will not be allowed as a citizen to harm or damage society by making irresponsible health decisions. So in some cases, health decisions are not given to the individual. They are given to society at large because individuals don't make healthy decisions for society at large. They make decisions for themselves. And so in, their, in this situation, they consider collective responsibility to be more important than individual freedom. So you would not be allowed to not, you would not be allowed to not take your kid in and not have them examined and have them say, your kid's bipolar, we're going to fix them so that they don't grow messed up. And you wouldn't be able to mm -hmm. say, no, you can't take away my freedoms. You'd be like, yeah, please fix my kid so he's not messed up and doesn't screw shit up when he gets older. Thank you. We love you for fixing my kid. 
So they have a right. completely different relationship, you know, with their social structure and their state structure and their governmental structure. There's a lot more governmental trust. They trust their system. They trust their government way more than we do. Well, that comes with a slightly higher consciousness, don't you think? Um, to be honest, or no. I, if, if you want to get into the discussion about civilization, it comes down to two different mental attitudes. One is barbarism and the other is civilization. And people either have a mental attitude that motivates them towards things that are considered barbarism or they have a social mental attitude that motivates them towards social responsibility and collective responsibility. And that's the difference between people who care about civilization and people who want to be barbarians. Okay. That's very succinct. Now, wow, time's just flying by. So a little bit about um, the Centauri. Sure, they're our closest would. neighbor. Well, our closest star system neighbor, yeah, sure. Um, and there? Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Go go for it, hon. Um, so I'd say that uh, physical stature, they tend to be a little shorter. They tend to be sort of in the four and a half to five and a half foot range, not so much the five to six foot range, tend to have darker features, tend to have dark hair, tend to have olive skin, uh, in some cases much darker than olive skin. Um, very smart. Um, they're... Their cities are definitely a little bit more densely packed, a little bit bigger. They get a little, little bit more like our cities can be, being, you know, big and more crowded. Um, Were you there have, for a similar reason? No, no, not at all. Uh, I was there for a, um, a training mission, to be honest with you. There was a – we have a military base on Centauri, and there was a – a specialist training division there, which I won't give any more details about, but I had to do two weeks on Centauri for this training mission at this very specialized training base that's on Centauri Prime. Okay. And, so I've only, uh, I was only there two weeks, but, I mean, we got we had to go to class, and then when we were done with class, you know, we basically, the barracks were you know, you could wander on and off base and we got to go down the street and go to sort of the market area and go shopping and eat food and stuff and be tourists. <clears throat> so it was kind of nice. Okay. Well, cool. Okay. So just for um, brevity's sake, I want you to speak a little bit about what I feel is one of my favorite ET species um, that most people think are myths, but originally came from the stars, but have been here, I think, since ice age at least, the uh, Sasquatch. And you've had a chance oh, to sure. play with them a little bit, right? Well, I, I've had this very interesting series of experiences through my life here on planet Earth, and one of them includes a number of run-ins with uh, these big furry Sasquatch dudes, Inky-Doo, we call them Inky-Doo in the <laughs> program, um, because uh, in the story of in the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, he had this yes. friend named Inky-Doo, and Inky-Doo was this big, tall, furry, stinky um, warrior who we're pretty sure is the same species that we're sort of referring to when we think of, when we talk about Sasquatch Bigfoots, we're sort of talking about the Inky-Doo. But that was a long time ago, so we think there's also now more than one subspecies. 
And so the subspecies are devolved primates, meaning they're not as psionically gifted. They're not as, you know, psionically conscious or communicative, and in some cases may represent uh, a hazard or a threat if you ran into one in the wilderness. But chances are you wouldn't run into one because they're so far from civilization. You'd literally probably have to hike in for you, some of the places where they live in the continental United States, you would have to hike in by foot for two weeks to get into where you might be in the territory where you might run, run into one. That's how far mm-hmm. we're talking about. We're not, we're not talking about five hours from the city or a two day hike. We're talking about like a two day hike from the last road that you could possibly get to farther into wilderness territory, maybe even by horseback before you'd even be in the territory that those would be in. So um, right. if they choose to be anywhere near where we are, it's usually a choice. It's usually a choice. Um, there are some experts who have studied migratory patterns and so forth better than I have, but there's a couple of devolved species, which some people talk right. about as, you know, the American skunk ape or something like that. Uh, but the Inky do themselves, they've been around for a very long time. We don't think that they're originally from here. We think that they came here maybe something like a half a million years ago. That's what they say. Yeah. I mean, that's what they they say themselves. Yeah. Yeah. About that. Um, And that they've kind of been here ever since and that they Uh have kind of found their little niche in their relationship, which includes being guardians of, um, they're often referred to by in some native cultures as the guardians of the underworld. So there, we kind of know that they tend to hang around caverns and open spaces that could lead to tunnels or caverns that go further into the earth or down into the Agartha network. But you're not likely to get through them uh, without, you know, right. their permission. Right. And from what I've heard from, from also personal accounts, um, people who have been to where they're really certain based on sightings and so forth where some of these caves are and have gotten to the entrances of the caves and heard a loud screeching noise that all they could say was it was it was so scary I didn't want to do anything but go away I didn't want to even go anywhere near whatever was making that noise and I was just like I'm outie so they tend to keep keep people away they tend to keep people away but that's and they and they stump branches and they throw rocks whizzing past your head and all oh yeah yeah things. no no I yeah yeah no, I was I, yeah. one one of the interactions that I had I had hiked up um, this uh, this trail for a little while and then the trail ended and there was a cre- which was along this creek and uh, there was a, stones in the middle of the creek, and if you hop from stone to stone to stone, you could go up the middle of the creek bed, which is what I did, and went up for, you know, I don't know, a couple of hours, um, way past where normally people would have, you know, gone past that trail, way too rough. This is in um, Cal- Northern California, so, you know, very along the coast, really rainforesty, v- difficult vegetation to trudge through, so you couldn't just wander off the trail, you'd be literally need a machete. Um, so we went up the creek, uh, got to the spot where there's this beautiful flat rock hidden by this pool that these two little waterfalls were dropping into. It was super picturesque. Mm. And as I'm sitting on this rock uh, with the sun behind me coming through the trees, 
Um, I see in front of me a shadow of something that goes behind me that was very large. It was not a bird. It was not something tiny or small. It was something very, very large that made a very big shadow as it went from my left side to my right side. And of course, naturally, mm-hmm. I spun my head around and saw nothing. I turned both ways. I saw nothing. I heard something. And I turned back, was looking the other way again. A few seconds there, then it jumps from my right side to my left side. The shadow goes <laughs> it's again. Playing and it, and they went, and yeah. They, yeah, they went back and forth and did that for an hour. Every time I turned around, I couldn't see anything. <laughs> and every time I turned back the other way, you know, it was it'd be some matter of seconds before this big shadow would, you know, go right behind me and block the sun. And I would, you know, whip my around and be like, okay, you guys are hilarious. Um, well, they yeah. also knew you were psionic, obviously, because they're psionic. Uh, yeah, probably. Right? Probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah probably. You oh, yeah, no, they're big practical to... jokers. Big practical jokers. Yeah. So they're, they're, uh, share some of their abilities. Um, well, psionic mastery is a, a thing of individual prowess. So depending on which individual you might be talking about, which would have what level of advanced ability. But I would say they're very telepathic. That's sort of a baseline ability. Uh, people have reported watching them vanish into thin air, uh, like ranchers pulling out their rifle, thinking, I'm going to shoot that thing, and then having it literally disappear from the middle of a dirt road path, not jump into the trees, exactly. not jump behind a bush, just vanish into thin air and disappear. Um, I've seen them appear and disappear in the blink of an eye. Um, mm-hmm. I saw one appear out of the corner of my eye, and I mean, I saw it as vivid as day. And it was only, mm-hmm. it was maybe 10 feet from me. And it was so freaking clear. But the minute I turned my head to, like, get a full-on view of it, it was, there was nothing there. It was gone. It was, was so light totally and fast. totally playing with you. But I, and, and, as a, and I can say, as a trained observer, I, I wasn't just seeing something. You know, as a trained observer, mm-hmm. I didn't imagine what I saw. As a trained observer, something popped out of nowhere. I saw a very clear image of it out of the corner of my eye. And then when I turned to actually get a full view with both eyes, it was already gone. Exactly. So they do yeah. dimensional jumping, telepathic, playful, mysterious, but, can cloak, you know. Yeah, and, um, possibly yeah. even move through solid rock. Probably even, yeah. you know, uh, phase out of, you know, sort of third density. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, or mm-hmm. possibly be able to phase out of 3D and like straight into, uh, like I said, through solid rock. There are a few people that I've talked to and worked with that have very well-developed relationships with uh, the more advanced ones to the point mm-hmm. where they actually begin to write English. It was just so beautiful. So, oh, interesting. That is such a fun- yeah, yeah, we got more to share down the line, Randy. So, so um, thank you so much. This has been so fun. And why don't you give people your contact information and where our listeners can go for private psionic readings from you or Q and A. Um, and also, folks, I can guarantee it is rare to find someone that is teaching to civilians. Someone who has Randy's width and depth of experience. So please take advantage of that. And I certainly have. And, uh, Randy, you were the kind of teacher I had wished for in school when I was so bored. So why don't you tell them um, where to contact you? Sure. Um, My website is www.covertspacecowboy.com, all one word. 
Uh, there's information for people who, anybody who wants to have personal consultation appointments with me, there's a link for that. The online psionics courses, we're doing the beta class right now, but I think we're letting people sign up still. So if people want to jump in and sign up, they can. Uh, or if you want to wait until we're done with the beta class in another you know, week or two and we do the official launch, you're welcome to wait for that. But I think the link can take you through and get you signed up if that's what you really want to do. Uh, the Facebook page is the Captain Randy Kramer Facebook page. If you want to do there, it's all kind of the same information linked together on uh, consultations, the class, and other stuff that's coming. So we're, we're definitely working on some stuff. Cool. That's so wonderful. Well, as you know, I'm signed up for that. So thank you so much, Randy, for your brilliant expertise and generosity of spirit. And folks, um, please join us in two weeks for part six where Randy will talk next time. We've gotten you warmed up with humanoid ETs, and now we're going to introduce you next to some non-humanoid ETs, which will be good preparation for you. And um, as well as uh, some other little treats in there. So, and for those of you that haven't had a chance to listen to the end of the last uh, radio show we had, there's some very important information about a uh, possible scenario, likely scenario that will roll out and some suggestions for you uh, in the next three months that Randy announced and explained. So please review that. And until then, remember to stay calm, stand up, do not give away your power or consent away to any authority that, that uh, out of fear. Keep non-polarizing as possible. Raise your energy with positive visions of the world you wish to create and take small action steps in cooperation with that vision so that we all act as true custodians of the sacred planet that we were meant to be. So I love you, Randy, and uh, thank you again. Thank you, people, and until then, upward and onward. Yeah.